Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is the fourth episode of 2023, and we thought we would do a deep dive into an old familiar subject that is popping up again, which is encryption. Yay. From the cypherpunk wars in the late 1990s, encryption has been a bit of a hot-button issue that has popped up again and again, almost cyclically. And currently, there is a proposal in the online safety bill that you have written about that we should talk about. But let's let's start with talking about encryption generally. What, why why is encryption such an interesting question from a policy perspective? Yeah. What, what are the harms? Sounds like a great idea for people to to have access to communication secrecy, no? Yeah, I mean, the, there are two things that, that are, I think are happening that are driving the debate. I mean, the first is the spread of what's known as end-to-end encryption. We should we should be really clear about that. That's where um, you know, I send you some content, a message or some piece of content where only you and I can decrypt that content and make it visible. As opposed to, there's lots of other sort of forms of encryption. So, for example, if a bank uh, has all your data on its computers, you hope that it's all encrypted, uh, but that's different. <laughs> that's a sort of different use of encryption because there's lots of people inside the bank decrypted. It's very different. So, it's, it's this notion of end-to-end encryption that is is uh, very specifically, I think, the target of, of policymakers at the moment. Where let's, it's let's people communicating with each other privately. Yeah. I think it's good to, to dig into that. So so say for the for the sake of argument that I want to send you something uh, that is quite secret. So <clears throat> I have my computer. I have an encryption program on my computer. I encrypt this particular file. It could be a Word file or something like that. I send it to you and I then tell you in some kind of channel elsewhere how to decrypt that. That's not quite what end-to-end encryption is, is it? Uh, um, so in this case, so, so historically, everyone's always been able to do that. They've always been able to, well, or, yeah, actually always, I go back to the dawn of time, I think the first instance of encrypted messages was, I think there's some evidence of it being used in Egyptian hieroglyphs. So there's a kind of long and venerable history uh, um, uh, where people could exchange messages and and if each party understood the encoding system the encryption system they were using then then in theory the message was at least private to anyone who intercepted it between the two parties but so only the two parties at either end have the key to decrypting it i think what's um sort of changed is this has now become a mass consumer product so the 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 systems of service providers like whatsapp and signal and others um those systems take care of all of this for you such that between the device of the sender and the device of the recipient, nobody, including the application provider, can read those or decrypt those messages. There is clever technology used such that effectively the sort of encryption codes are only known to the devices at either end of that communication. And that's happening at a mass market scale in a way that most security experts would say is is sort of functionally unbreakable. I mean, there is it's almost impossible these days with the current state of computer technology for somebody who, who if, even if they're able to grab that content in its encrypted forms, it passes over the network to be able to read it. You have to have one of the two or more devices, one of the devices that is a party to that communication because of the way this clever technology is implemented. 
Um, and there are other people who are far more qualified than me to talk about the detail of of how that works. But but as I say, the, the fact that policymakers and, and others and law enforcement are screaming about it tells you <laughs> that the technology is quite effective. Yes, but it sounds great though, right? Because what you have is communication secrecy, something that we have long thought was a key component to traditional democracy, right? The fact that you and I should be able to talk to each other without anybody eavesdropping. Exactly, and that and that's why it's growing and why it's so attractive that um, people, you know, when offered that option, if if, if I say to you, you even, yeah, let's assume you, that you're not doing anything wrong, but if I say to you, when you send a private message to someone else, would you rather that uh, a third party that that could be the service provider, that could be a government, that could could be somebody malicious, a criminal? Would you rather they're able to read it or would you rather have a guarantee nobody else can read it? And if a service provider offers me that guarantee, you know, I'm going to take it. And and what's happened, I say, over recent years is the technology has evolved to the point where that promise can be made uh, to a reasonable degree. We've seen something, just to put it in context, we've seen something similar with websites. If we even go back, I think, 10 years when you communicated with a website, most of them uh, use a protocol called HTTP, uh, the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, and uh, it said in your web browser HTTP colon forward slash forward slash, and then the website name. Um, and essentially, you were sending a clear text message that could be read by somebody else to the website, and the website was sending you clear text content back. And anybody who sat on your internet connection could read what was going backwards and forwards between you and the website. Over the last decade, as the technology got better, pretty much every website in the world has now switched to something called HTTPS. Uh, And so now when you look, you'll see a padlock or something in your browser. And that essentially means, look, when you communicate with that website, with a few exceptions, but generally speaking, what you're sending to the website and what the website is sending back to you, nobody else can read, even if they sit on the connection. And again, it's so obvious that that's better, <laughs> that it's just spread and it's now become the norm. So it's, you know, it enhances security, arguably, it enhances privacy. So what are the harms? Yeah, I mean, the harm essentially is that, well, it, uh, the people who are lobbying for uh, in ha- uh, gaming access, and we'll go into the details of why they're trying to do their regulation. I should also say, look, the other phenomenon is the technology's changed. But also we are now at this point, particularly in the Europe and the UK, where we're passing regulations that give a regulator the power to, to order companies to do certain things in the interest of online safety, saying that we need to protect citizens and now we're taking on these powers. So then that begs the question of whether one of the things that you need to do in order to be able to enhance online safety is read people's private messages. So that's really where it's coming from. It's it's saying, look, if I'm a, a public authority, whether I'm a regulator or I'm a law enforcement agency whose mission is to keep people safe, I can't do that if I can't read their messages. <laughs> it's sort of where that's coming from. And, then, and now we're in a, a debate around whether, you know, whether that really is the case. Uh, the extent to which it's the case, and the price, the cost of giving, even if you accept that look, law enforcement agencies and others could keep people a lot safer if they can read messages, what's the cost of that in, in terms of people's privacy and freedom and, 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 and other aspects? And so let's also talk for one second about proportionality. 
So um, out of all of the messages that are encrypted, what percentage are problematic, would you say? Yeah. Just I, I, guessing. Yeah, I think it's really hard. To, I, I would say certainly I would have said for a mainstream messaging service because I, I think i think there are variants so so if people follow the debate there's a if you google something called EncroChat, e-n-c-r-o-c-h-a-t that is a messaging service in which pretty much 100 percent of the people who were using that service were were regarded at least to, to have something to hide it marketed itself as a as a encrypted messaging service for criminals. So you will have something like that, but the other end of the spectrum, look, a mainstream messaging service like a WhatsApp or a Signal or others, I think we can reasonably assume that the vast majority of users are perfectly sort of straightforward people going about ordinary business. And, you know, just like in society, a small percentage of people in society have criminal intent of various kinds. I would have said, in a sense, the users of a mainstream messaging service reflect society at large. And therefore, whatever percentage of your society are pedophiles or terrorists or whatever it is we're worried about, that's the percentage that will be represented on the messaging service. I don't think it's necessarily more or less. There's no reason to argue it's more or less. I have to say some of the people who worry about encryption do precisely argue that it's more. They, they, they say because these messaging services are private, Almost the argument is people who otherwise would be good will turn bad because they now have access to a, a private messaging service. And, and that in some way sort of encourages them to, to indulge bad behavior that they would otherwise be scared to indulge. And I think we need to unpack that. But certainly there are some people who argue that the existence of encrypt, encrypted messaging increases the percentage of bad people in society. My starting point, again, you need data really to back this up. But my starting point would be, I think it's reasonable to assume the percentage of bad people is the same as the percentage of bad people, more or less, in society at large. And that, that brings us back to an old favorite that we should do a classic session on at some point, which is David Brin's Transparent Society. Uh, Brin famously, and I think it was 1998, wrote a book in which he argued that privacy uh, was essentially antisocial. And so what you needed to do was to build a panopticon, you know, this prison yeah. that, that uh, Bentham came up with, where everyone gets to sit in the tower and watch everybody else. And that social control creates goodness. Uh, but we needed to build that, build that digitally, because if we do, everyone will behave well and everyone will uh, will avoid crimes, etc., because we know that there's immediate accountability for it. Transparency to him in that broad societal sense uh, was a very small price to pay for uh, less crime and less antisocial behavior. Yeah. Now, obviously, what you can say to that is that that seems to be right, because we have this problem here of a general benefit of security and privacy, as we first discussed, and a specific harm of, for example, child sexual abuse imagery being distributed or criminal conduct, etc. And whenever we're in a policy situation like that, where there is like a general benefit and a specific harm, it gets really hard to argue. Why is that? Exactly. And um, I, I mean, it's it's hard because in a sense, you, you are potentially... Um, infringing on the rights of innocent people in order to catch the guilty. And actually, the European Convention on Human Rights, which should, should be our, our sort of lodestone in this, 
from its outset, sort of it understood that and, and the right to privacy is qualified uh, for that very reason. So, so we envisaged, you know, almost from back from the 1950s when, when all of the human rights conventions were being drafted, we envisaged that there was going to be a trade-off and these concepts of necessity and proportionality were developed. And I still think they hold true today that, that there is an understanding you have a right to privacy. It is not absolute, but a state intrusion on your right to privacy requires certain hurdles to be met. And those hurdles are that you must demonstrate why it's necessary. You must show why the more intrusive measures that you're producing, the ones that will improve privacy are necessary because there was no alternative way of achieving the same objective and why they're proportionate. So even, even if they are the only way that you can achieve the objective, they still need to be proportionate. And so you might find yourself in a situation where you know, you, you, it's the, the classic thing of sort of a court case. You, you allow a certain number of guilty people to go free because you're worried about the impact on the innocent people. And so you are literally making a trade-off to say, yes, there may be sometimes things you could do that you won't do. And and you're right. Not all societies will come to that same judgment. And And we typically judge whether or not society is more free by the extent to which it is prepared to to tolerate put it that way, a certain amount of uninvestigated un, uh, bad behavior in order to preserve the freedom and the rights of those who, who would otherwise be affected. And we are now making the assumption that these tools are placed into the hand of a benign state. Yeah. There's something else here that's interesting too, and that is that if you want to make sure that regulation is long-term sustainable and safe from a, a civil liberties perspective, then you want to figure out the possible variation in the governing people going forward, which means you want this legislation to be safe no matter who's at the helm. Now, if you build a system that assumes a good regulator and you actually think that the regulator is quite good and can make this distinction, there is no guarantee against that system not being co-opted in the future by other people who have much less good intentions. And so there's something there as well, right? I remember the old encryption debate that we had in the end of the 90s. One of the key arguments that was being made that I really sympathized with at the time was that you should build your surveillance mechanisms so that if they're taken over by someone who has less democratic instincts, they cannot be used in order to suppress dissent, for example. Yeah. So there's something there that we seem to be losing sight of as well, right? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, this is about a uh, fundamental decision about the relationship between the, the citizen and the state writ large, not the citizen and any particular government. And that's why I say I think it does, it, certainly for somebody who's in, in the uh, European Convention on Human Rights sphere, they are very dependent on the fact that there is a, a sort of other set of defined rights that their state's actions can be tested against. Um, and in the EU, there's a charter of fundamental rights. And I think but, but what I find sort of interesting in the debate is, in some ways, governments are sort of pointing in both directions. They are both, they are both advocating for enhanced privacy and in, uh, you know, all of the rights, the fundamental rights you have to privacy and at the same time appear to be advocating for legislative measures that would undermine that. And they're also at an international dimension uh, uh, calling out other countries. So again, in, in the UK debate on the online safety bill, the, the UK government has come up with this phrase, which I think now perhaps they would regret. They wanted the UK to, to be the safest place in the world to go on the internet. And 
and people have pointed out, I think not inaccurately, the safest place to to be on the internet in the world is China because China allows nothing harmful. It manages the internet down to the finest degree and stops things happening. And I don't think we want the Chinese internet in the UK. And so we end up with this weird, weird sort of dichotomy where we are where there's a rhetoric that says we want it to be perfectly safe and it's driving a whole bunch of legislation that says we must get safer, safer, safer. And yet there is, a, I think, another exception that says, look, no, we want a private internet. We believe in the autonomy of citizens, et cetera, et cetera. And we hate what's happening in China. And so, so China has got that panopticon. They, they have said, look, whatever you do on the internet, government can surveil it. And if we look at the the recent hearings around TikTok in the United States Congress, I mean, again, the rhetoric is all, oh, it is terrible that TikTok has access to user data because it might give it to the Chinese government. And 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 again, the whole drive is well, yeah, really, TikTok. The only rational response is to end-to-end encrypt the data so that TikTok can't see it anymore, and then they can't give it to the Chinese government. And if they did that. I expect those U.S. congressmen would say, "Great, that's, that's progress. You know, we, we, you've done the right thing. You now can't give it to the Chinese government." Well, it's no different giving it to the American government or the UK government or anyone else. I mean, it's it's different in the sense that we may have a different view about those governments, but the the core principle, which is, you know, do we want companies to hand over data to governments, uh, or do we want them to keep it secure in such a way? That it that it is only uh, accessible by the user, the owner of that data. I, th- I think we need to you know, step back and go. Look, are we advocating for that as a principle, or are, you know, I mean, again, there's a legitimate argument to say, no. What we mean is, you must only give it to good governments. Like, fine, but let's let's talk about it in those terms. Let's not get apocalyptic about saying the thing in China is absolutely awful, and then advocating for something which candidly does look quite similar. Uh, to be implemented at home purely on the basis that we're saying these are different governments. So encryption really does raise a lot of the questions that we typically come back to again and again when we talk about policy and legislation. One of them is the harm and the benefit question. And of course, the problem of having a very specific harm and a general benefit, because what happens then is that the political debate easily um, uh, gets skewed towards the particular harm or the specific harm. Uh, the other thing that we mentioned is that it's actually about striking those sustainable long-term balances between citizen and state in many cases, figuring out what is the right balance here ideologically. And there's a little bit too thin a layer of ideology in many of the discussions we're currently having. They're much more of the quick patch kind of discussions. Oh, there's a problem here. Let's fix it. And you don't step back and take the ideological perspective, if you will, which is this state-citizen perspective. And there's the question of conflicting values, which is also ideological, really, safety and privacy. You know, are we secure enough uh, or are we free? Do we have enough privacy? And again, an ideological question that gets obscured by the specific harms, by the, the, the very salient and horrible example, Trump's ideology, which speaks about something that's happened to our policy debates overall, probably, I think, you know, I'm sounding like an old man now, but <laughs> I think there's something here that, that, we're, yeah. that we're losing when we're losing the ideological perspective. But there's a fourth thing that we usually come back to that's useful to think about in this case, too, and that's that's the the um, the second order effects. So assume you do this. Uh, there's a proposal in the EU, the sort of chat control idea that you would scam and try to force everyone to scan on the client side, all devices that are connected so that you can find uh, sexual abuse imagery, the, the specific harm. 
there's a proposal in the online safety bill that you have written about on your blog, and we'll get back to that, that says more or less the same thing. Now, assume we do this. What happens then in the second order effect? It seems obvious that we're just creating an incentive to displace all of the illegal content into channels that are much harder to understand or to infiltrate or to, to sort of, uh, in different ways, uh, fight against. So there, talk about that a bit. Yeah, I, I mean, a criticism I have of the current debate, I think you, you're right, as the sort of Trump reference that is helpful in terms of where a lot of debates have gone, that they are they're considered to be black and white and they're very polarized. And we, we've ended up with a community which is either so, sort of all... Uh, privacy, you know, everything that government does to intrude on our privacy is problematic and we must fight it, or all security, uh, we have to be able to go after these people and you, the tech companies, are the enemy. And I actually think, and I read about this in the blog, but I, th- I think that's missing the point. I think people on both sides, people on the tech side, actually do care about harm, and most of them, <laughs> and most of the people on the government security side do care about uh, uh, privacy as well and human rights, and we're trying to find a balance. So I, I, th- I think there is a you know if China is the all security model, y- you have no privacy rights. It's all about security, and if the traditional Silicon Valley rhetoric is but the all state security, not citizen state security, security, exactly, yeah. exactly state security. But but they would argue that they'll argue they're doing it in the interest of citizens. But that's yeah. you know they go in that direction. And then the Silicon Valley model is the is the sort of all privacy model, uh, and it has been characterised sometimes as you know uh, um, some of these harms are a price worth paying to have our wonderful technology. I actually do think there is something in the middle, which is this European Convention type model, which is let's really apply those necessary and proportionate tests properly. And we will come up with something which makes nobody happy. And so I'll probably get slammed from both sides for this. And the thing I think that makes potentially makes nobody happy but is the right solution is to say, look, blanket measures that involve, you know, surveilling all of the chat of all of the people all of the time, we should absolutely try to avoid. We should be looking for other measures that involve surveilling potentially the chat of people who are high risk in particular circumstances. And again, if you're on the privacy side, you would hate that as well. That does mean, you know, I'm I'm comfortable personally with my government having passed all the appropriate tests, placing spyware on people's devices, including my own, if they have good reason to do so, uh, and reading my encrypted communications. I'm comfortable with a whole range of things they can do to, to kind of demand, insist on data being provided that will help them catch people who threaten me and my family and the rest of my society. Again, with all the right safeguards and controls in place. So in other words, what I'm saying here, I think is targeted measures, yes, even very intrusive targeted measures, blanket measures, no, unless you can really demonstrate you know, why that blanket measure is essential. And in most cases, I don't think they can. I think there's a, uh, I had about sort of a lot of lazy assumptions behind some of the proposals for blanket measures. They're, they're sort of, there are assumptions that they would have an effect they wouldn't necessarily have. And part of it is the point you've just made that, that the blanket measure may just divert people off into other channels. That's one of the risks. It, it it may create a lot of noise and very little signal. Uh, and that has been some of the problem with all the mass scanning, that, yes, you, you get lots and lots of reports. Um, to, to give an example from an adjacent field on on uh, Know Your Customer Checks for Money Laundering, 
when you set the know your customer threshold too low, what happens is the financial authorities get told about everybody who's opening a bank account and they can no longer find the suspicious people. So there's all sorts of like very fundamental practical reasons why some of the blanket measures don't work. Um, yeah. And I think that's where we need to focus the debate. And the noise is up to 80% in some cases from what we've heard around blanket scanning in Germany, for example. So exactly. it seems as if, if the noise uh, signal ratio really goes uh, to the wrong place when you do blanket scanning. And of course, you create this alternative shadow world where people are not going to obey uh, the law. You, you, ma- you make this point in your post that we need to assume people have good intentions. And it's interesting because it led me to think about this. There's a, there's a, a paraphrase of something Plato said, which is good, good people don't need good laws, bad people don't care about good laws. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> Who's the law for? It's a really yeah. important question. <laughs> it is a really important question. Yeah. And, and, and it goes back to the question of what the specific harm is and, and how to outline that. So talk then uh, specifically about the online safety yeah. bill and what's happening there. What what is it that we're seeing? So 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 the bill does not say at any point um, the regulator is going to be given the power to order either the removal of encryption, end-to-end encryption, or uh, to insist explicitly that there is client-side scanning, which is this thing where you uh, on somebody's device you put in a piece of software, typically which will check content against a database of known bad content. It doesn't say they can explicitly do that, but there are hints. And the hints are, it essentially says, look, Ofcom will have the power to order platforms to deploy particular technologies where they are necessary to meet the objectives of the legislation. And those objectives include preventing the distribution, particularly of child sexual abuse material and terrorist content. So, so and you could read from that. only or proportionate as well? You uh, just, th- throughout the bill, it talks about everything in the bill must be necessary and proportionate. And again, a feature of UK legislation is on the front page of every piece of legislation, except the recent uh, illegal immigration bill, which the government has acknowledged may be in breach of their human rights commitments. And that's another bigger debate but every other bill including this bill on the front page it says the secretary of state has said this this piece of legislation is consistent with our human rights obligations which means everything in the bill is uh, asking for measures which are necessary and proportional or the minister believes would meet the article 8 European Convention right, right to privacy test or necessary and proportional so it's kind of belt and braces the whole legislation the government is asserting meets that test. And then throughout the bill itself, it keeps saying, and everything you do uh, in the interest of online safety must also respect people's privacy rights. So the government will argue, they'll they'll argue against any amendment to this by saying it's unnecessary because we're already committed to respecting people's privacy. Why not Why not give guidelines in an amendment for what necessary and proportionate means by, for example, providing red lines and saying, here's a set of things that you cannot do because they are not necessary, nor are they proportionate. So that's exactly what we'll be doing next week in an amendment table by some, uh, and, and in parliamentary terms, I have to say noble friends of mine, uh, some noble friends of table amendment, which basically, basically sort of tries to do that by saying, look, any measures should not uh, lead to the removal, for example, of end-to-end encryption. So it's sort of, it's trying to make it explicit. And I am very confident the government will say, no, this is not necessary, because I think, again, you and I both have experience of this, they are aiming for deliberate ambiguity. This is intentional ambiguity. 
Uh, and again, those who are worried about this say, look, as soon as this bill is law, the government is going to be issuing orders which effectively ban end-to-end encryption. I, I don't think that that is an accurate description. I think what they want is they want a big stick to take to their negotiations with tech companies. And the reason I say this is because I've been on the other side where they've brought other big sticks. And the big stick is there to say, look, either do what we want or we will bring an order in. So they don't want to close down the fact they're going to bring the order in, but they're, they're sort of dancing through this thing saying, no, 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 it's not our intention. We believe in end-to-end encryption. It's all fine. But we reserve to ourselves the, you know, the right to create a bit of uncertainty so that when we come and talk to you, you're more scared of us and you give us what we want. And, and it could also have a negative effect, of course, of delaying end-to-end encryption in new services or in new contexts, because people might feel that this is uh, provoking the government in some way. So okay. once something like this is on the books, it, it starts to have this chilling effect, right? Exactly. And that, and that is part of their intention. I've no doubt they, they want to have that chilling effect on, on services. And the one that sort of everyone's been talking about is that Facebook Messenger and Instagram are, are in the process of moving to end-to-end. And I think they look at this and, and I think it's much more likely they would, you know, take the big stick to that fight, frankly, than that they would at least in the short term, insist that WhatsApp compromises or signal compromises end to an encryption. But but the fact that they've got this power is of course causing lots and lots of concern. And and from my own point of view, one of the things I regret is look, you know, we, we are veterans of lots and lots of discussions where governments come in private and try and lean on you to do things related to content, you know, whether it's taking down content they don't like or providing data about bad, bad people. Part of the the benefit of moving to a regulated framework, one would hope, is that all of that secret, private, uh, unaccountable negotiation now moves into a space where citizens can see what's going on and it's yes. all clear and above board. And so it's, it is regrettable they're continuing, even in the new framework, to leave these areas of ambiguity. So and, we're, we're and- creating clarity, but not complete clarity because and not democratic us. participation in the execution of the powers that are actually intended to surveil yeah. people who who they're also protecting i mean this is one of the reasons i i was a part of the team that set out the first transparency report and one of the reasons we did this was that we thought that we need to provide information about the extent to which democratically elected governments use the powers invested in them for surveillance of their citizens because otherwise how can you make an informed decision if you like this or not how can you have this impact your political choices and so i think this this is the the uh, the other side of that yeah. i think companies are incentivized to <clears throat> to bring these things out in the open to make sure that you can make an informed decision as a citizen of whether you think these powers are used in the right way and then you can say rightly critically about the companies that they should bring out other decisions they make as well so you can make an informed choice of whether you want to use the services or not exactly yeah. and, and i think actually the transparency report is an interesting example because um i think the original rationale was it would be a naming and shaming process we'll show how many requests for data bad governments are making and then everyone will will you know jump up and down and lobby against it actually practice i was just i was using the transparency report i looked at meta's one to just try and understand what's going on you know in the uk and i looked in the, the first half of 2022 um, Meta was servicing nearly 2,000 requests a month from UK law enforcement. I mean, that's like tens, dozens of them coming in every day and servicing and providing the data. And and I think there's also a, a trick that's being missed. The government still plays, I think, leans far too heavily into the rhetoric of, oh, my God, 
you know, uh, the internet is a wild west because we can't pursue anyone and, and they've all got anonymity and it's impossible to find anyone and it's impossible to prosecute people and people who use end-to-end encrypted services are are doing so with impunity, which is just not true. And I actually think you know, it's incredibly counterproductive to their own interests to feed that very out-of-date myth. The reality is if you use a mainstream online service and you're doing bad things, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be identifiable. And if the bad thing is sufficient to attract the attention of law enforcement, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to come after you and they're going to get things. Yes. And that includes end-to-end encrypted services. And again, in the post, I talk about this because I think it's really important that, look, if the only way that end-to-end encryption is truly secure is if you only ever send messages to yourself. Yes. As soon as you send content to somebody else, like, you know, you may think you're secure, but the other person might decide to send the police. Well, you yeah. mentioned EncroChat, yeah, yeah. which is an excellent example, right? Because it was infiltrated by the police. And but, yeah. they managed to take that whole operation down and it produced masses of evidence yeah. that did not come from eliminating end-to-end encryption, but classical hard police work in infiltration. Well, they're the infiltrated the whole network, but, but every, every week in the UK, we're having more cases um, of police officers who have been sharing the vilest kind of content inside WhatsApp groups. And yeah, WhatsApp is end-to-end encrypted. But when the police come knocking on on someone's door and they say, we're investigating this, hand over the WhatsApp messages, people hand them over. And and yeah, they may not have compromised your phone, but they've got somebody else in the group you were in. And and prosecutions, uh, I really don't understand why the government isn't stressing that more, and I think they should. Well, I think it's because it takes away that argument. I mean, back to the 90s, one of the arguments was that uh, criminals would now get a free pass and they would be able to use encryption and you wouldn't be able to police them. And then there was an investigation just a few years after they had produced uh, legislation or ideas around the clipper chip and hardware uh, backdoors and all of those weird things that they were up to that showed that there were absolutely zero cases in FBI where the case had not been solved because of uh, encrypted uh, data. None. I mean, (laughs) if you you start listing the specific harms where you haven't been able to solve a case, if that's your specific harm, they turn out to be very few because there's so much else that goes into solving a criminal case than just having access to encrypted communications. And I think that, that also brings us back to this notion of specific harm, that there's a specific envisioned and imagined harm, which is that there's all of this criminal activity going on that we can't police because it's encrypted. But if you look at the actual numbers, that's not entirely true. It's not, no. And and I would, again, if you're going to apply the necessity test properly, so I, if I'm the, a government and I'm saying, look, I, I want to start scanning everything, I need to go through the necessity test. The necessity test should say, have you tried everything else first? Yes. Because this is massively intrusive. And one of the things you should try is, you know, uh, uh, how we say a public information campaign, which is don't be a dick and think that your encrypted messages are safe. They're not <laughs> because they get all these ways that they, they will be compromised. If somebody reports your conduct, if somebody sent me a vile WhatsApp message and I report it to WhatsApp, guess what? I'm reporting the unencrypted content because I, you know, you've sent it to me, it's on my phone. If you join a group that's larger than, I'd say, a dozen people, you know, the chances are someone's going to break the secrets of the group. We're, we're again, we're debating at the moment this uh, uh, national security leak of this person with the Discord server, and they they leaked these messages. And while the Discord community was very very small, 
for a time it appears to have been kept within the community, but quite quickly, somebody in that community thought this stuff is juicy. I'll share it outside. Now it's everywhere. So again, just like they should be reminding people of all these ways in which their encrypted messages, you know, uh, will be compromised if they start doing bad things and see what effect that has. Uh, They need to try other tools they have. They can, as I say, they can plant physical or software technical bugs on people's devices which well, you could all of the encryption reverse psychology right saying that end-to-end yeah. encryption is horrible and really really hard to crack makes people less careful and so they end up sending all mm. kinds of stuff through mainstream services rather than moving to signal or the darknet so yeah. maybe they're smarter than we give them credit for. maybe, maybe there's, there's a bluff and double bluff and triple buff but, but from a citizen point of view i well certainly I no longer work for a service provider, but I would. I used to feel really proud. Um, you know, one that one of the sort of moments we would have would be if, if just again, probably not a trade secret too much, but as you might imagine, the security people in the tech platforms hang around in the dark spaces where the bad guys are in order to collect intelligence and inform their defenses. And whenever anybody said, you know, in those dark spaces, oh, steer away from Facebook or wherever it is, because you know, it's it's too risky from a bad guy point of view. You're going to get caught. You felt really proud. You've done That's your job good. right. That's testimony to things working it's well. Testimony to things yeah. work. And and again, we want more of that. If I work for a platform, yeah, I, I want to I, I want to both say, look, if you're a legitimate user using my platform in a in a permitted way, a lawful way, absolutely, we've built a technology that will keep your communication secure. But if you're a bad person, you're sharing bad content to a group of people. Any one of those people could lead to you getting prosecuted. So best not to do it. You know, just don't yeah. do it because I don't want those people on my platform. And and we just seem not. To, yeah, we in this debate. We're in these. We've got these polar ends of the debate. People saying, you know, uh, almost law enforcement keep away end to end encryption has to be preserved perfectly, and then people at the other end saying, you know, it's it's a black hole. We can't see anything. We have to have full access. Where I say the reality in them is somewhere in the middle, which is there should be no access except in certain limited circumstances. Those circumstances are probably broader than most people think uh, and do mean that unless someone is extraordinarily careful about the bad things they're doing, you know, if, if not only limiting their communications to auto-communication, they're limiting them to a very, very tiny group with incredible information security. Unless they're doing that, good chance I'll get caught, particularly if they're a high value person where law enforcement is willing to invest in surveillance that will surveillance infiltration, infiltration yeah. intelligence all of yeah. those things that really matter if you want to solve a, a solve a complex case so so let's let's um, think a little bit about the future so we have that control the European Union is debating quite invasive measures you have the online safety bill. You have, I think, arguably a, a growing um, worry about platforms and a regulatory momentum. So let's let's sort of look at the five, ten-year horizon. How do you think the privacy security balance will shift over the coming five to ten years? Do you think we'll have end-to-end encrypted services? Do you think we will see um, 
increase of the dark web as things move out into services that are far beyond uh, the, the, the mainstream where there's actually content moderation and proper procedures for law, for, law enforcement access. What's your sort of your take on the five to 10 year perspective? What are the trends that we should yeah. be thinking about? So, so I think there are um, there are probably three scenarios I would, I would map out that are all possible. The first scenario is this is all sort of sound and fury signifying nothing that we'll carry on, that people will carry on, you know, with the services as we've got them and, uh, and that there's a, there's going to be a lot of noise about it, but all of the proposals will be abandoned. And if we look at one example of, of that recently, Apple unilaterally suggested they would do client side scanning for all iCloud content. <coughs> and it created yeah. such a fuss that Apple backed backed away from it. And uh, so there is a model in which look, we got lots of proposals, but you know, Ofcom, uh, the UK regulators can decide it can't do it. The EU is going to talk about it but back away. That's oh, scenario one. So sort of business as usual. Scenario two is that somewhere in the world <laughs> Uh, a government insists on client-side scanning or other forms of, of backdoor access to encrypted content, and the platforms accept that because perhaps, uh, the, and the classic you know candidate that a lot of people talk about obviously is India. It's a huge market, really really important, um, but with quite a strong security presence, and it doesn't have a uh, the same kind of comprehensive privacy law that that um, someone like the EU does. And so you know if if uh, platforms give way in one market, I think it will encourage the other. So the kind of domino effect where where some country just goes, look, we're going to go to the wire, we're going to insist on this, and then they they do, the platforms keep serving in those countries and everyone goes. And then, so that's sort of scenario two, uh, it's all gone. All, all end-to-end encryption has gone effectively through this domino effect. But, and that's a really, it's interesting scenario because in that scenario, you also end up in, in uh, an enormous amount of noise. Because yeah. what happens is that the law enforcement access at this point needs superb filters to find anything because you're going to have access to so much information it's going to be really really hard to understand what it is now if you want to attack someone you're going to be able to do it because you have access to information about them but you're not going to be able to combat crime at a higher level because you won't have scaled the resources of law enforcement to deal with all of that new information so what it does is essentially is that if you at some point have become the target for law enforcement activities rightly or wrongly there will now be enough information to get you. So it's it's a really interesting kind of scenario that you're envisioning because at this point, what happens is that everyone gets less secure, but not everyone gets caught in the web, but only those people that are targeted for other reasons now have no defense. Yeah, and then there's lots and lots of knock-on effect from it. I, I would say, again, um, I'm sure there are lots of Chinese companies who have the technology to sort the signal from the noise because they've been doing this kind of stuff for years. Which is not good thing. I mean, that's not good. And so you were sort of you would be adopting that kind of model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, a, yeah. it's a good question. I think that it, a large part of the surveillance society's uh, efficiency lies in the imagined efficiency of exactly. that surveillance society. Yeah, yeah. So um, then, my third scenario is that we end up bogged down in court cases, and I think it's particularly true of the EU, where, as I say, the legislation is is 
almost yeah, literally pulling in opposite directions. You know, privacy, 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 and surveillance capitalism, platforms, you should have as little access to data as possible. And, oh, but here, we want you to. And it's sort of pulling in opposite directions, and, and it may end up... Um, getting litigated, I think, extensively in the European Court of Justice with different countries taking different views. And you, you could end up with, you know, country A. I mean, the UK is no longer in the EU, but you can imagine a court case where you're going into court and the UK would have been on one side and Germany on the other side as they sort of litigate against each other. And we again, there are examples, we've seen this before, the data retention directive. The yes. EU had a blanket data retention policy that ended up being struck down in the European Court of Justice following complaints. And the reason it was struck down was that they didn't pass the necessity and proportionality test. The court said you could require the retention of data, but you're doing it in an excessive way. And in fact, again, if you look at most of the EU complaints about um, the the data exchanges with the United States, again, that have been tested in the European Court of Justice, a key plank has been the argument that in the United States there is blanket data retention and blanket surveillance as opposed to targeted surveillance. So again, mm-hmm. if I think if the EU proceeds with trying to impose mandates that require you know, mass scanning or, or anything that sort of operates on a blanket scale, it's going to get challenged and then people are going to go to the European Court of Justice and test you, you know, data protection law versus... Would essentially the EU govern um, an adequacy uh, finding with the EU? <laughs> with itself, yeah, yeah. So it'll get struck down, but it will... I mean, they would they would say we're still adequate because we have the European Court of Justice process. Unlike other parts of the world, you can go to court and test it. Um, but the court will have to make a really challenging decision on, on which of these two regimes win. I think that the danger, of course, in the meantime is, is that for anyone who's trying to offer a service, you really have this lack of clarity. Depending on who you talk to, you get a different answer. You talk to person A and they say, don't access the data. They talk to person B and they say, you must access the data. And that ain't good. <laughs> yeah. No scenario in which we see a massive increase in privacy there. There, there is, uh, you could, you could argue, because here's the thing, right? You could argue that one of the things that will probably happen in the next five to 10 years is that we will have a lot of, uh, intelligent agents representing us in different contexts and those agents will naturally have to be encrypted because they will have to be loyal only to us so we have to ask them to do different things now access to agents will be more important than access to uh, end-to-end encryption in many ways and so and we will feel much more strongly about this idea that somebody who we have delegated part of our agency to should be investigated by or should be accessible by someone else than us so you could argue that this entire shift where we get more intelligent agents where we get more uh, support from different kinds of AI systems is premised on privacy being kept, not just as today's level, as in your first scenario, but actually being scaled up so we can trust more in these systems and delegate to them. Or we will never do that because we feel that trusting to them is trusting to someone who has divided loyalties, part to us and part to the state. And so there's, you could argue that maybe out of the sheer complexity of that technological strand of developments, uh, you're going to get more privacy. And it might not even be encryption. In many yeah. cases, it's enough to do steganography <laughs> yeah. and, and, and just hide the information in different kinds of um, forms. So, And of course, you get so much more information 
that the ability for the state to actually sift through it all also hits a kind of ceiling. So you end up in this fourth scenario where you actually have much more privacy as an individual because of the complexity of the technology and the landscape that we're entering into. Exactly. I think you're exactly right. Um, we have this tendency frequently to legislate for yesterday's problems. And and then and then there is a sort of legislative response which you stick a blanket catch-all phrase into the legislation thinking that will deal with tomorrow's problems, but it rarely does. Because tomorrow's problems don't look like an extension of yesterday's problems, so you need to go back to the drawing board. And just as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Look, look um, this example we have at the moment where, you know, I mean, it's, it's a horrible situation um, from public interest point of view, but British police officers have been revealed many of them many i mean thousands of them to be really sort of deeply unpleasant in terms of the messages that's exchanged with each other and now they can be fired because those messages are chased back to trace back to them but as you're just talking i'm imagining the you know dirty racist joke bot that, yeah. that uh in future is the thing that generates the racist jokes and so you can say it was, wasn't me gov it was somebody else it was that thing that ai rather than me and uh, I, I don't mean that for c i mean that that's just an example of where this transition may happen where you know today's problem that we're looking at is people secretly exchanging dirty racist jokes with each other and we want to investigate that tomorrow's problem may be an order of magnitude different it, it, we're still worried about racist behavior but it's evolved in a way that is not a simple extension of of today's and so we've implemented technologies that you say catch yesterday's bad behavior, but aren't really yeah. relevant for tomorrow's bad behavior. And I was thinking about this as you talked about auto-communication. The only way to be safe is to communicate with yourself. Well, if you have a network of a thousand agents that you communicate with and do different things for you and have different capacities and capabilities, you're essentially communicating with yourself, but you're also not because these agents will store information in different ways, they will be connected in different ways, which means that even now that you're talking to yourself, you're talking to a group of different agents where you would like to have some level of privacy in order to be able to trust them. We're, we're um, yeah, this is, I think there's another podcast episode coming up for this. Yes. At, at what point will your agent have a statutory legal duty to report you to the police? Yeah. <laughs> for something that for a communication that took place between you and your own agent is a really interesting question, I think. <laughs> and is there a market for, if you allow this, uh, less publicly minded agents and more publicly minded agents? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, wow. and that's for another session, I feel. Well, well let's wrap this up. Mm. Um, you can find this podcast at your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Excellent. Thanks for tuning in, and you'll hear from us soon again.